Hello, Tim Williams here. I'm the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Thanks for choosing to listen to one of our archived episodes from our early days of launching the show. Although I love the overall content of these episodes, I will say the recording quality was not always the best as the show was still evolving and I was learning to record and edit pretty much on the fly. I believe the sound quality and editing has improved from season to season, so be sure to check out more great episodes in our more recent seasons. I hope you enjoy this episode and that it rekindles all those warm and fuzzy nostalgic feels. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Hello movie viewers and movie lovers, my name is Tim Williams and I'm your host for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast, where we talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter what flick we choose from week to week, we'll have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. In 1986, a few mixed science fiction, dark comedy, horror, doo-wop-inspired musical numbers, and a director who was more famous for voicing Yoda and Miss Piggy, you probably wouldn't expect too much. 
But this bona fide cult classic has been entertaining audiences for decades with its timeless soundtrack and stellar cast. So let's head downtown to Skid Row and Mr. Mushnick's Flower Shop because it's supper time for Audrey 2 as Laramie and Bethany Wells join me to discuss Little Shop of Horrors on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. So welcome everybody. I'm so glad to have uh, Laramie Wells and his wife joining us. Bethany, say hello everybody. Hi everybody. Hello. <laughs> so uh, this is a great movie. This is like one of my favorite, favorite uh, musicals. And for my friend Ron West, loves to joke that I hate uh, movie musicals. Uh, he's totally wrong. It's a running joke with me. All because I didn't like the remake of Beauty and the Beast uh, a few years ago. You're uh, about to not by, like that movie. I, I still stand, stand by my dislike of that movie, but... Because he liked it more than I did, he has claimed that I hate movie musicals, which is not true. So anyway, so when did you guys see Little Shop of Horrors for the first time? Was it at the movie theater, on VHS, or something else? I think uh, this sounds like a broken record for me, because I think I've said this every time you've had me on. I think I saw it on television. <laughs> I really do. I think as a kid, I saw it on right. you know one of the, the television stations when it would air it uh, on like the weekend or something. Right. Um, I did not see it in theaters because it came out two years before I was born. But uh, okay, I well, that do, makes sense. <laughs> but I do remember seeing it at very young at a very young age, um, probably okay. before kindergarten on VHS. It was just one of those VHSs that me and my sister watched repeatedly. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I didn't see this one in the theater either, and I don't remember. If- I can't remember, like, actually thinking about it being in the theater. I think this was one that I actually saw back when they had, you know, this was before Blockbuster was big, but just, like, little mom-and-pop VHS rental yeah. stores. Yeah. And I remember seeing the uh, the cover for it, and I, I was a big fan of Rick Moranis. I loved Steve Martin, uh, and I loved, I think I knew that um, Bill Murray was in it and John Candy. So, uh, so I rented it and just absolutely fell in love with it from the first time watching it. And where we were living in Maryland at that time, we were, I was actually living on a military base at the time. And the library there had albums that you could check out, like, yeah. you know, uh, vinyl albums. <clears throat> and they had the soundtrack to Little Shop of Horrors. So, of course, the I movie checked it out from the, the library. Broadway soundtrack? No, the movie soundtrack. Okay. So I took it home, and of course I dubbed it onto a cassette tape, and I would just burn that puppy out. <laughs> this is the most over and over and over again. So late eighties, early nineties conversation I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I the the soundtrack is probably more burned into my memory than the movie, but I've seen the movie several several times. So, uh, so now, how long has it been since you watched it before watching it for the podcast today? Not that long because uh, our, our our oldest, oldest daughter yeah. is a fan of it. <laughs> she loves <laughs> this musical, and we we talked before we started recording. Um, the theater group that we're involved in, the right. youth program, actually did a production of it a year ago. I guess it was a year ago. It seems forever. Yeah, but yeah. Um, they did a production, and we took Ruby to go see it, and she was just starstruck. She wanted a picture with Audrey, and <laughs> she she was afraid to go close to the plant afterwards. It was it was really oh, wow. cute. Yeah, but we we've been a, both been a fan of it um, for a while because mm-hmm. when the 
I guess, the anniversary Blu-ray. In 2012, because it was the first year we were married. Yeah. So when they came out with that, that included the original ending. Right, uh, right. Bethany actually bought me that as a Christmas present. I was so excited. Okay. Yeah. So, which of course is is the one we watched to prepare for this one. Yes. Uh, we yeah, even went back and watched. We watched it the theatrical version, and then we went back and watched just the uh, the original ending. The ending, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I watched it not too long ago either, but it had been a while since I'd seen it before. Then, um, I think actually, you know, kind of getting back into musicals when we did Memphis. And that's how Larry and I met doing uh, the theater production of Memphis uh, a little over a year ago. And uh, just kind of getting thinking about musicals that I loved as a kid, I found the soundtrack on Apple Music one day when I was working and just listened to the soundtrack again. And then um, I think it was before it was HBO Max, but I had an HBO subscription and I found it on there. And I was like, oh, man, I watched this a long time. And I just, you know, popped it in on a Saturday or not popped it in, but, <laughs> you know, clicked the button to watch it uh, from HBO on demand uh, Saturday morning and just... Uh, you know, cranked up the sound and just enjoyed it. And so I did the same thing this morning. So when I watched it again, so uh, it's still, uh, it still holds up really well uh, yeah. to be a movie from 1986 for sure. So, yes. um, so it, this one has definitely a pretty, one. I'm sorry. It's definitely no, one I'll watch while I'm like cleaning house. Cause it's got such a good <laughs> soundtrack Oh yeah, and I can just stop halfway through it and watch, know exactly what's going on and then keep going. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So uh, it's got a pretty interesting history about how it uh, came to be. So I'm sure you guys probably know a lot about that as well. So uh, feel free to fill any blanks that I may have missed uh, on here. But, of course, uh, it's a film adaptation of the 1982 off-Broadway musical comedy of the same name by composer Alan Menken and writer Howard Ashman, which in turn was based on a 1960 film, the Little Shop of Horrors, directed by Roger Corman, who's well-known as a B-movie uh, mastermind. And uh, I think I actually saw that it's it was more famous because it was made within a week oh, than wow. because mm-hmm. it was actually a good movie. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. And, you know, uh, Jack Nicholson is in it. He plays the right. Bill Murray character. Right. That was his very first uh, film role. So I, I, I remember seeing, like, their DVDs or maybe some old VHS uh, copies of the original Little Shop of Horrors well after mm-hmm. I saw this version yeah. with Jack, of course, Jack Nicholson's face plastered all over because they yeah. want you to see it because he's in it. So, yeah. uh, but I think yeah. they used to sell those like DVD copies at the Dollar Tree, the ones that are in the teeny right. tiny little sleeve cases. And Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I actually yeah. own the original. Uh, I actually, yeah, I actually have a DVD copy of uh, the original Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, it it has, to to what is my knowledge, it has the original artwork uh, as mm-hmm. the cover. It's not the one like you're referring to where it shows Jack Nicholson holding the plant. Holding the plant, yeah, that's um, the one I'm talking about. Yeah, which Jack Nicholson is such a small part mm-hmm. of the original. I mean, people talk about Bill Murray's part in this one, well... Jack Nicholson's part is, I think, even less, less in the original. <laughs> right. Yeah, I can I can imagine that. So I think the little I watched a little behind the scenes video today, um, and they were showing little a little clip of the uh, original with Nicholson, and of course it was only a few minutes. So and and we didn't have any dialogue, just reached the pictures. So did he get a but, candy um, bar? That's the important question. Did he hmm. get the candy bar? 
<laughs> right, right. <laughs> so David Geffen uh, was one of the original producers of the off-Broadway show, and he began planning to produce a feature film adaptation. Uh, originally, Steven Spielberg was executive producer, uh, or was going to executive produce the film with Martin Scorsese to direct. Uh, mm. Scorsese actually wanted to shoot it in 3D, which I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, but production yeah, that would have been installed. that red-green 3D, though. Oh, yeah, yeah old-school 3D. Yeah. So, but it was stalled when a lawsuit was filed by the original film screenwriter and actor Charles B. Griffith. Uh, and then I think John Landis was also attached to the project for a while. But then Geffen offered the film to Frank Oz, who had just finished working on The Muppets Take Manhattan around the same time. Oz initially rejected it, but he later had an idea that got him into the cinematic aspect of the project, which he did not figure out before. Oz spent a month and a half to restructure the script which he felt was stage-bound. Geffen and Ashman liked what he had written and decided to go with what he did. Oz was also studying the off-Broadway show and how it was thematically constructed, all in order to reconstruct it for the future film. So, But uh, it's interesting because thinking about him coming off of Muppets Take Manhattan, watching it again this time today, I can see a lot. I mean, of course, they use a lot of puppet puppetry for the yeah. plant, yeah. but even some of the scenes with the actors... It it has some of that same Muppet movie kind of feel, even with the uh, maybe the acting kind of a little more. Uh, I don't know what's the right word. It's not over. It's not overdone. It's more caricature than like an actual yeah. character. Yeah. So now, uh, just to go back really quick. Um, sure. Ashman and Minkin, who wrote the music yes. and all that. Yes. You didn't even mention about the fact that if anyone's not familiar with those names or wondering why they ring a bell. These are the guys that would go on to make the Disney Renaissance at the end of the 80s. Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Mm -hmm. Beast, as you made fun of earlier, and and even Aladdin. I love the the animated version. It was the remake that was not good. Well, but they didn't do the movie. They did the music. Right, right. Well, he didn't make fun of the music, Laramie. Calm down. Right. I need you guys to calm down. that that's a whole different podcast, and that's you know. But uh, we'll tackle all the the misfired mu- movie musicals for another uh, another series of podcasts. But, um, now, but I yeah, but I think Frank Oz did a yeah. Frank Oz yeah. was incredible. He um, I read something that said that originally Cindy Lauper and Barbara Streisand yep. had been offered the role of Audrey, but right. Frank Oz was like, no, it needs to be Ellen Green, which, you know, mm-hmm. thank goodness, because she is probably subtly the most hilarious character in the oh, movie, yeah. in my opinion, because I love her. Yeah. <laughs> she's just, she's got these, like, w- throwaway lines that are hysterical mm-hmm. to me. Oh, yeah. And because she had done it so many times with the off-Broadway production, which I think they said ran over or had over a thousand shows, whatever, at the time when they were filming it. And um, she played her on the West End. Right. Mm-hmm. So she, she knew that role yeah. kind of better than anybody else could even think. And they were even saying that, I don't, you know, they, they really couldn't say if they could prove it or not, but they were pretty sure this was the first time they had cast someone in the movie that had played the role in Broadway or on stage. So she was the first one to go from playing the exact same character from stage to screen. So it was always pretty amazing. She's just perfection, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, since we're talking about casting, we can, we'll talk about the cast. It's, it's pretty extensive. And we'll, it's a, a well-rounded cast. Star-studded. We won't get too extensive in it. Yeah. 
So Rick Moranis, who was uh, hot off the heels of his breakout role in Ghostbusters, uh, played the part of Seymour Krillborn, and I they didn't I didn't see anything where they, they talked about casting anyone else in that role, and I'm glad because he I think so he was good. perfect for that for sure. Laramie and I, when we were watching, it's the part where he does the I don't know part. That part. Yeah. Yeah. So I wrote in my notes, like, Rick Moranis is an American treasure. I don't care how Canadian he is. <laughs> and then as soon as I'm done typing it, Laramie goes, Rick Moranis is a treasure. <laughs> I'm just like, I just said that. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, once again, I, I loved him in Ghostbusters, but this this made me, like, a big fan of his. And, of course, he went on to do other great movies, Spaceballs, uh, the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids uh, movies. Mm-hmm. Um, my I, Blue I can't, Heaven. Those are the ones that, yeah, My Blue Heaven, him and Steve Martin again. That was another good one. So good. So, uh, so, so that was good. So, as you mentioned about Ellen Green, um, they offered it to Cindy Lauper and Barbara Streisand. Uh, I saw a few places that Madonna was also rumored to have been offered the part. Uh, But, yeah. But Oz said, I couldn't imagine any other Audrey, really. She nailed the part off-Broadway for years. So, Mm -hmm. uh, I I agree with you wholehearted. I couldn't imagine anybody else uh, in that role. And then, I was going to say earlier, this is a movie that me and my dad watched. I know he watched it the first time with me. We must have seen it a couple of times on cable or whatever. But we would always laugh with, Dr. Yes, doctor. Yes, doctor. Yes, doctor. And so we would, yeah, we would, we would use that term uh, yeah. often, just being silly. So, well, and I uh, honestly, missing... I honestly probably just on a regular basis, like I say, sure. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah I was sure. about to say yeah. that. Laramie and I will yeah. to each other go. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one too for sure. So Vincent Gardino as Mr. Mushnick. Uh, and then we talk about Steve Martin as the dentist, Oren Scrivillo. Uh, it supposedly took Steve Martin six weeks to film all of his scenes. He contributed ideas such as socking the nurse in the face. Originally, he was just knock her out with the motorbike helmet and ripping <laughs> off the doll head. So uh, He also, wasn't it his idea to do the shrine to his mom? Did I read that or did I dream that? That I do not know. I don't. Google yeah, it. I didn't Let's read that Google either. It. So <laughs> yeah, we have to. Yeah, we'll Google. We'll check the Googler. I did read that the picture of the mother was actually a male actor dressed in drag, <laughs> uh, which I thought was pretty funny. So, um, oh, mama, that's yeah. That was oh, one of my favorite. Mama. The the dentist scene was probably my dad's favorite scene. We would he would want to watch that part over and over again. Oh yeah. Uh, so uh, the voice of Audrey Two was Levi Stubbs from the Four Tops. Which I also think was once again was perfect casting. Um, I read somewhere that Eddie Murphy was considered to voice Audrey too, which huh. I could you know possibly see, but uh, probably he not wouldn't have as... been able to sing as well. No. Yeah, I mean he's got a pretty good voice, but he's not. He doesn't have that same uh, growl that Levi Stubbs does. Right. Um, and then I read something that I really didn't put in my notes because I didn't think it would. I, it was just too outrageous. But now I'm going to bring it up. But supposedly the someone in the cast or someone someone in the crew was trying really hard to get Rodney Dangerfield in the movie. Why I do Why? not know. I guess he was like a big <laughs> fan. And so at some point they had gotten the script to Rodney Dangerfield and had him record some of Audrey 2's dialogue 
to try to convince Oz to cast him as the voice, not the singing voice, <clears throat> but the speaking voice. And uh, yeah, it did not go over very well. So yeah. very glad for that. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> no, right. no offense. I, I, I want to give him his respect, but... <laughs> <laughs> Boo. Very well, well played. If I if I had a rim shot, I would have hit it right then. <laughs> but oh no, yeah. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So then the uh, the Greek chorus or the trio at the beginning, uh, Tashina Arnold, Tisha Campbell, with, uh, and Michelle Weeks, uh, were Crystal, Ronette, and Shafan. And uh, many people know that Tichina, I'm probably saying her name wrong, Arnold and Tisha Campbell would later star together in the TV show Martin with comedian Martin Lawrence. Um, I had totally forgotten that they were in that until watching it again, you yeah. know, more recently. Uh, a little cameo, Jim Belushi as Patrick Martin, the licensing and marketing executive. Uh, he actually appeared after the reshoots because the original actor, Paul Dooley, was unavailable to reprise his scenes for the reshoots. And we're talking about reshoots and stuff. If you don't know the story, we're going to get to it. So it's kind of, uh, we'll, we'll get there. And it's then uh, one of my favorite cameos, John Candy as Wink Wilkinson, the DJ for WSKID. <laughs> uh, he was actually offered the part of Mushnik. He asked if there were mm. other any other minor roles, and Oz oh. told him about the DJ, and he quickly accepted. So uh, that that's one of my fun. favorite scenes as well. Yes. And then uh, I always forget he's in this because he's so uh, unrecognizable to me. But Christopher Guest, yes. as the first customer to enter the flower shop and notice Audrey too, uh, yeah. which is still really funny. That little small part. I was yesterday years old when I realized that was Christopher Guest. <laughs> well, he's so. I mean, compared to all the other things that I've seen him in, he's yeah. so unrecognizable. There, of course, he's a lot younger, right. uh, but he's so clean shaven and. He's kind of playing very straight, a very straight laced with a real short part as well. So, right. And and then of course we mentioned the uh, the dental patient uh, played by Bill Murray, who improvised all of his dialogue. Of course, um, they said that as a result of Murray's wildly different lines in each take during the two days of filming <laughs> of his scene with uh, uh, Steve Martin. The editor struggled to cut a coherent scene together. Also, the dentist's <laughs> office was originally far gorier, with blood splattered on several of the walls. When test audiences voiced their displeasure with the gruesome setting, it was cleaned up and filmed over. So, yeah. but, I, I did make note uh, of when you when they cut to Seymour sitting out in the waiting room, and you're hearing Bill Murray, you know, his yeah. all of his dialogue. Part of me was like, there's no way he'd be able to say so much of that with the stuff that Steve Martin's cramming into his mouth. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, um, there's another I... little notable cameo. Uh, this The little girl that's got the weird contraption all over her head right. is played by Jim right. Henson's daughter. daughter yeah. Heather right. Henson. Henson. Excuse me. Yeah. 
and I think his son was one of the main puppeteers as well. So he yeah. was. Yeah, Brian uh, did involved. a lot of the puppeteering back in the yeah. the eighties. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, the uh, the dentist scene is well. We'll get to favorite scenes, but that's probably probably one of my favorite scenes. But the uh, I think I'd read that the um, that on on paper in the script the the patient was really he had no lines at all like he was just supposed to come in and and sit in the chair i mean he had a few lines and then bill murray basically asked like do i have to read what's on the page and oz was just like you just you show up you and steve figure it out and we'll just film whatever we can capture and so like two days of filming them together i'm sure i would love to see all the alternate takes i'm sure there's plenty of good stuff there as well so but uh and it's the only time the two of them have been in a scene on film together yeah Really? Uh, still to this day, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about that when we were rewatching it. I was like, oh, I'd love. I would have loved to have seen another movie with the two of them, they where they so good together. Yeah, yeah, where they had a bigger part. Mm-hmm. They seem like they would be friends. Oh, yeah. Are they friends? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, <I don't> <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Maybe. So. All right, so uh, talk a little bit about the filming. Like I said, we're not going to get too too heavy into this because i want to talk a little bit more about the differences between the uh broadway or at least you know what we've seen of the stage production uh versus the movie which we'll get into so but amazing when this came out in 1986 it was the most expensive movie warner brothers had ever produced with a budget of 25 million it even surpassed aliens which of course uh laramie and i discussed uh several weeks ago which had a budget of 18 million and was shot in adjacent stage at Pinewood Studios. Uh, All the scenes were filmed at Pinewood Studios in England, making use of every soundstage there, including the 007 stage. Oz and his crew did not want to shoot on location as it would tamper with the fantastical mood of the film. Part of the giant 007 stage was used to film the Suddenly Seymour number, but because of Mm -hmm. its size, the stage was impractical to heat properly, which caused breath condensation to appear from the actor's lips. This was countered by having Ellen Green and Rick Moranis put ice cubes in their mouths during the singing scenes. Well, it shows because all but one effect still holds up to this day. Like, you still watch it now, and it's just incredible. Yeah, I was was actually, you're talking about the sets. Uh, You know, we we talked about the fact that it's kind of crazy how the you know all the skid row setting it's very dark it's very depressing but yet mm-hmm. somehow it still has this like whimsical mm-hmm. yeah uh, yeah aspect to it it looks like a theater set in my opinion like it's it's all just like slightly unreal it's right. realistic but slightly off because yeah, like mm-hmm. you're talking about the where they did suddenly see more. There's just this random like piece of a wall yeah. just in the middle of the set, and right, but right. you don't really question it like, because why not? Right? Yeah. There's an eat. There's a plant that eats yeah. people, so why wouldn't there be a wall just there? Right. I think it holds on to its kind of Broadway or its theater roots, like you say. Yeah. I think it has that. Uh, you're still you're still using your imagination. You're not completely it doesn't take away that that adding your element of imagination when you're watching a stage production because they a stage production can't show you everything it can give you yeah. 
you know, broad strokes. But, and it does give uh, it that classic Hollywood musical feel. Mm-hmm. Oh, where yeah. Where they yeah. used to, you know, especially for Warner Brothers, because they used mm-hmm. to do the big, you know, uh, soundstage musicals. Right, so. right. So uh, one interesting note about just the wardrobe and props that were obtained um, for the movie. So they had to get the uh, most of the costumes from New York thrift shops in order to attain the period of real- realism. Uh, they said the most difficult items to find were garbage cans. So set director Tessa Davies drove around in a truck filled with new cans, and whenever she saw the old ones outside of someone's house, <laughs> she stopped and offered to trade. People thought I was crazy, she remarked. So, <laughs> which I think uh, someone, you know, there was another note that said that you could, they could tell it was filmed in London because one of the trash cans had a certain logo that was only for uh sanitation company in london um oh. of course i didn't see that of course i'm not mm. looking for it either but anyway that's that's what happens when the internet at. gets involved in watching movies <laughs> so uh so let's go ahead and talk a little bit we could talk about uh you know audrey two and the puppeteering and all that cool stuff but uh i want to jump a, jump into the differences between the stage production and the film version. So uh, Laramie and Bethany have been involved in uh, theater, uh, done much more theater stuff than I have. uh, And I've actually never seen the theatrical version of Little Shop of Horrors. I've only seen the film version. So uh, go ahead and kind of break it down for me. So I've seen a professional production. Um, When I was in high school, we went to go see it at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. And um, I had seen the movie before um, since I was a really young kid. And I think there's one main difference. And I don't know if you want to jump into that right now, but we've been no, talking about yeah. we've been talking about the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was shocked sitting there in this theater, and the theatrical ending happened because it's not as happy as the movies. Right. Right. Um. But there's really, they stick pretty close to the theatrical storyline. There's a couple of songs that are removed. There's mm-hmm. only one of the songs that I actually, like, miss. And that's uh, a song that's sung by the dentist. It's called It's Just, or it's called Now, and in parentheses, it's it's Just the Gas. Okay. And it's as um, the dentist is dying, he's got that mask stuck on his face, and he's explaining to Seymour, like, hey, you know, I know I look like I'm laughing, but it's just the gas. I'm actually dying, so could you help me? Okay. Um, Which I was, I think it would have been really fun to watch Steve Martin sing that song. But at the same time... um... Part of the charm that we've kind of talked about of this movie is Rick Moranis. Oh, yeah. And yeah. in the the staged version, Seymour is a little darker. Um, he's a little more active with the murders. Yeah. Now he's, okay. pa- well, now, he's passive in both cases. He doesn't ever actually murder anybody. Um, mm-hmm. But in the theatrical version... When it comes to the dentist, you know, the dentist, like Bethany is saying, is is pretty much pleading to him, which they do a little bit of Steve Martin. But it's like two solid minutes of him saying, please help me. And, and Seymour's just not. Uh, <laughs> whereas 
and and you you kind of feel a little again it depends on the performance of the dentist but you feel a little bad for the dentist uh as he's dying whereas i think in the movie when he says you know what did i ever do to you Mm -hmm. and seymour you know says it's not what you did to me and you know he's like oh her and Mm -hmm. you kind of you almost just even with that you go you know what i'm okay with the dentist dying yeah (laughs) you know um and then the same thing with mushnik in the movie uh you know seymour is talking with him and seymour's not really letting him know the plants behind him Right, and then or that he, the plant will eat him. Yeah, and then he turns, and the plant eats Mushnik. But in the play, Seymour kind of lures Mushnik into okay. the plant. He's like saying, like, "Oh, you've got to do this, and yeah, you've got to like do that." And he goes, "Oh, and there's one really important thing. You need to lean in." And he, yeah, he, he says, has "You got to reach." Mushnick yeah, lean he's in. telling him how to take care of the plant, and he's telling him like you have mm-hmm. to to get towards the back of his, you know, the inside the and. And, of course, that's what, what does it there. So, you know, Seymour's a little bit more responsible. Again, passive in both cases, but he's a little bit more responsible right. for the deaths But that the also kind of plays into the stage ending of... Because, you know, spoiler alert, if you don't know it, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. <laughs> the plant kills Audrey 1. Yeah, it's 34 years right. ago. I think we're good. <laughs> well, yeah, you know. <laughs> um, Kills Audrey 1, and then mm-hmm. uh, Seymour snaps, and he says, I'm going to hack you up from the inside, and he jumps in with his machete, and then the, the plant spits the machete out. So then he kills um, Seymour, Seymour, and then right. they're able to... T- uh, the garden place, Jim Belushi's character take snippets from Audrey 2 and the plants take over the world. And it kind mm-hmm. of plays into this idea of like, it doesn't matter. Look, we took the sweetest guy. You watched the sweetest guy literally kill two people. We can do this to anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's even a line in the staged play where uh, after Seymour brings in Audrey's uh, body after she has passed away and feeds her to the plant. I think he even has a line about something uh, don't quote me on the exact line, but something about the, we're both monsters. Yeah. Um, and then like Bethany said, you know, he he then proceeds to try to to kill the plant um, with a, with the axe which you do see him with the axe mm-hmm. in, uh, in this one. Um, and then probably the part of the play that doesn't make any sense, why he then climbs inside the mouth of the plant in order to hack away at it. I guess it's to establish, he knows it's the plants weaker on the inside than on the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and then we get, like Bethany was saying, we get the, what, what happened and it's all done through song. It's the, right. The three female characters you met, mentioned earlier, Chiffon and Crystal and Ronette. Ronette. And they're mm-hmm. doing this song called Don't Feed the Plants. And they're just... Because it's a Greek tragedy, is what it is. Right. And they're the Greek chorus. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so it ends with them talking about what has happened. Uh, but I definitely agree that that ending does not work on the screen. No. 
Right, um, right. You know, if and you... it could be because of how passive Seymour is. Like, you don't want him to die. He doesn't deserve it. Well, and that's the thing with movies. I mean, you don't... No one wants the, the sad ending in a movie. Everybody wants the happy ending. You, right. you talk to 15-year-old right. Bethany sitting in the Fox Theater in Atlanta. Yeah. Bethany didn't want Seymour to die on that <laughs> stage either. Well, but there's also something to the actual... The way that the finale plays out in a theater. It actually requires the intimacy of a theater. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If you ever do get to see the the original ending of the movie... It's also it, like 17 minutes long. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I think it's like six, five or six minutes uh, from when Seymour dies. It's like five or six minutes of where we're just watching random people get attacked by plants. That we don't know or care about. Yeah, we, we have no... We don't care at this point anymore. And it looks mm-hmm. different from the rest of the film. We were talking earlier about how the set was very whimsical. And it's almost like... The set for this original ending is more realistic, and then they put gigantic okay. Audrey twos everywhere. Right. Yeah. Right. And then when you see it, when you see the stage production, usually while "Don't Feed the Plants" is being sung, you get several things happening. You get uh, people coming, depending on how how the performance is set up, but you usually get people coming out with plants, and they're you know, they go out into the audience, you know, kind of mm-hmm. like, hey, oh, look, it's the plants. The uh, off-Broadway version actually had, like, vines fall from the ceiling onto the audience. Yeah. Okay. And, and then you even get, you get kind of, uh, you you get a return of Audrey and Seymour, and they're all... Orin and Mushnick. And, and they're, they're all covered mm-hmm. in plants. leaves and plants to where they look like mm-hmm. they've become part, which is from the, the Roger Corman. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. In the original, when the plant the original original yeah in the 1960 <laughs> movie when the plant eats someone, one of its uh, like it sprouts a flower that actually mm-hmm. has the person's face huh. inside okay. of the flower. That's morbid. And yeah. so yeah, so and that and of course <laughs> that's the big ending of that one is that Seymour mm-hmm. tried to stop it, and then we cut and we see the. I believe it's the flower shop owners. I don't think it's Mushnick in the original. But um, you see them coming in, and they're wondering where Seymour is. And then they look over at the plant, and they see Seymour's face on one of the things. And that's just how the movie ends, is seeing Seymour's okay. face in the plant. Um, and so they kind of tie in that the original with that. But again, we don't want to see that in the mm-hmm. movie. You know, We don't want to see a right. zombie Seymour <laughs> or a zombie you know, Audrey. Mm-hmm come back and whatnot and i gotta tell you i don't know what like bethany was saying the visual of it frank oz just went a little too crazy it ends with another plant it's supposed to look like it's bursting out of the screen right at you which you know would tie into that 3d element that you talked Mm -hmm. about earlier but it yeah it just doesn't work and so as upset as a lot of people were with the change of the ending, it works better for a movie than right, the actual right. theatrical. Um, and when I say theatrical, I mean theater. The actual staged ending gotcha. uh, right. would Makes work. Makes it easier to let your three-year-old watch it. I'll say that for sure. 
<laughs> yeah. I think I, I think one thing that I read said that it had for Warner Brothers, it had one of the highest testing like a uh, test audience's score until the ending. Like it was rating off the charts as far as like they loved everything, you know, cheering, applauding after all the musical numbers. And then once it got to that ending, it was just like they said it was like a refrigerator. You know, it just everything just went totally cold in the theater uh, with the test audiences. And so um, but, yeah, I think I've watched I have seen the uh, the original ending and it does feel kind of like I said, it's we're real over the top. It, it, yeah. it it's, it's like a Godzilla a con- movie. Yeah. It's such a contrast of the different movie from what you've been watching. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I definitely prefer the, the movie in the original movie ending. Um, but like Larry said, when I was originally reading about the uh, ending, uh, a lot of them were saying the same thing that you were saying, Larry, about in the theater, the theatrical experience, the stage experience, you see the original actors come back on stage. There's this, oh, they're still alive. They're real people, you know, but in your, in a movie when someone dies and that's it, it's like, it kind of, it, it leaves you feeling a different way. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So, but I, as you were saying, the, the Blu-ray that came out a few, what, 2012, you said? Yes. Was that? Yeah. So that one actually has, which I think before, uh, there was, in I think when it originally came to DVD, and this is in my notes somewhere else when I'm going to get there, the original DVD, when it was re- originally released, had a form of the original ending, mm-hmm. but there were some like black and white sections and yeah. music was missing. And uh, when I think Geffen found out about it, he went completely crazy, and they pulled those from the shelves yeah. like within a couple of the first four days. Uh, but he did not realize, or they didn't realize they were actual, you know, full-color versions so they were able to restore all that stuff for the Blu-ray that came out in 2012. So um, I want to say the version that I saw might have been the old, old one because I remember it being kind of not as clean as I thought it was going to be. So, mm-hmm. uh, But that was several years ago when I watched it, when I originally heard the story about the different endings, and uh, I went back and watched it on YouTube or something like that. So, of course, YouTube quality is never as good as watching yeah. the Blu-ray <laughs> anyway. So. My name is Laramie Wells, and I host a podcast called Moving Panels. On Moving Panels, we discuss movies and television shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and a wide range of guest hosts as we discuss the hits like Logan and The Dark Knight, as well as clear misses like X-Men Origins Wolverine and Green Lantern. New episodes drop every other Friday, and you can find us wherever you download your podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and we'll see you on the other side of the page. So, uh, all right. So let's let's talk a little bit about the soundtrack. We'll we'll get into happier happier times with the uh, with the music because it, it it is such a fun. Uh, it has some fun, some really fun songs, and of course, like I said, it has a doo wop, you know, uh, late fifties, early sixties kind of musical style. Even though, from what I understand, the stage version doesn't really give it a time period, um, but the 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 music pretty much. Kind of sets that tone for us. So, yeah. uh, do you guys have a favorite song from the movie? I, it's kind of torn for me. Um, yeah, I the my favorite personally, my favorite song is "Grow for Me." Uh, mm-hmm. That's one that uh, 
you know, I'll just find myself singing sometimes. Uh, it was actually when I started auditioning for shows after college. It was actually okay. uh, the song that I would go in with uh, oh, yeah. and be prepared for was Grow For Me. But there's just something about supper time. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that's, is it supper time? Is the, the, the guy sure looks like plant food to me? Feed me. Feed, is, or is that Feed Me Seymour? Feed, feed Me Seymour, yeah. yeah. Feed Me Now. Yeah. 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 So, but just the two of them, it, it's amazing yeah. how well Rick Moranis can sing. Oh yeah, and it's a it's amazing how well he sings with Levi Stubbs. Yes, yeah, and Audrey Green for this. Yes. Yes. with suddenly Seymour, um, I was really impressed. Um, re- no. was watching it, so yeah, when Ellen Green is able to let loose in I some know. of those songs, She's... you can tell yeah. she is a stage performer. That's oh, that's yeah. probably why, because like you said, I, honestly, everything from this musical, if you're a theater musical theater person you've auditioned with either grow for me or somewhere that's green just depending oh on yeah yeah your range but i i love somewhere that's green i will just sing it in the shower sometimes <laughs> it's just so pretty it's, oh yeah i just love that song uh amazingly for me skid row is probably my favorite yeah. and oh, that's a good I, one. I just it's a great one, and I know it's more of an ensemble, you know, song. But that opening, uh, you know, that the, the opening, and she, you know, kills mm-hmm. that opening section. The uh, they don't like give her a character name, but the old lady at the beginning, yeah. uh, the older lady I at think, the beginning. I think so. her character name is old lady. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, but I think that you know, and maybe because it's earlier in the movie, and that was one of the first songs that kind of really grabbed me early on, and kind of kept me watching as one of the first time watching it but even now when it comes on i just it it, it has from so the first heart. note yeah. it just it just grabs well, you so yeah that's the sign of a good musical is that you've got yeah. those i mean i know that they sing little shop first um yeah. but but for <laughs> skid row kind of being the first song of the actual story mm-hmm. uh you know just a, a good musical is going to have those big musical numbers that grab you right off the the get-go skid row does such a good job of setting the scene setting yeah setting up this is where these characters are right now we don't need Mm -hmm. to know anything about their backstory because this song sets it up right out of the gate yes i think i i agree i think it it is an excellent way of giving exposition at the beginning of the story like you said it gives a backstory and puts you Totally in the mindset of yeah. uh, of the location because the movie really takes place and just like they talked about in the you know the original movie I think in the original movie it just takes place in the shop mm-hmm. um, not much exterior and even the the film besides the dentist office uh, it really only has two locations so it really lets you know really what that what the life is like right there so yeah um, I mean you know you talked about you and I meeting in the doing the musical Memphis. I mean, right. the opening song of Memphis, the underground. I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's ex- exactly the, the same. It's establishing yeah. like, okay, here are, here's the, the style that we're going with. Here's mm-hmm. kind of you getting to know the background as quickly as possible of where we are. And, uh, just sets the tone. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Any other songs you want to mention before we move on? I mean, we could talk about I, them all. I could talk about literally every <laughs> single one of the songs. Yeah. I But nobody wants to hear me gush, because everything would just be like, oh, I just love that song. Yeah. Oh, I just love that song. <laughs> Again, the the Dennis song is yeah. is great. Yeah. So good. Um, yeah. You know, Some fun, fun Now. Yeah. Which actually replaced a song from the off-Broadway okay. uh, show. It was called You Never Know. Okay. Which is actually how the song starts. Like, it still has the same setup, but it goes into some fun now instead of the rest of You Never Know. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's, you know, Mean Green Mother, which was written for the movie. It is not in the stage performance. Um, And then Bethany and I actually discovered it was nominated for an an Academy Award, and it was the first movie, or, yeah, first song from from a movie. movie. That mm-hmm. had that was nominated that had cursing in it. it. Had right. right. That had yeah, so they did release like a tamer version. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I saw this that every song except Dadu is different on the soundtrack album. There are both drastic and minor deviations in orchestrations, singers, vocal takes, and several songs include additional verses or alternate lyrics. The single version of Dentist includes sound effects and dialogue from the film, extensively featuring Bill Murray, as well as the line He's strictly a medical mess, which doesn't appear in any other release of the song. There are several different single radio edits of Mean Green Mother from Outer Space and a 12-inch version, which begins with the soundtrack album's ominous alternate prologue segueing into the song. So, hmm. Now, you, you mentioned uh, uh, Dadu. Uh, right. Look, this is... This is going to be a big nerd thing here, and I'm very curious as to how many of, of the listeners will know this. But when they show the street corner uh, group that's singing, you know, and then a yeah. Yeah. one of right. those is played by the guy. I do not know the actor's name, but he's played mm-hmm. by the actor, a British actor, who played the cat on the British sci-fi comedy uh, Red Dwarf. Nerd alert. And I, I was a huge fan of Red Dwarf. Um, I used to watch it on, of course, here in America, I watched it on uh, PBS. But a mm-hmm. huge fan. And so it, it was just fun when I got older and I would see that scene. I was like, hey, that's the cat. Um, so if, if anyone else listening knows what I'm talking about. All two of you. It is, it is an awesome thing to see. Uh, yes, this... I, I, I did not know that, and I can honestly say that, and I've never seen Red Dwarf. I've heard of it, but I've never seen it, yeah. so uh, there you go. Well, and another thing we learned from uh, from that song, as well as, well as this movie and, and most movies in the 80s, is that never buy anything from a stereotypical Chinese <laughs> store owner. <laughs> um, you're either you learn gonna, it from Gremlins. Yeah, you're either going to buy from... an alien plant or a mogwai. Ugh. Right. The the tokenism in this movie is actually cringy. The only thing right. that doesn't hold up, because yeah, yeah, that little part with the Chinese store owner, Mister Chang, mm-hmm. it's right. pretty bad. Well, and that's honestly, you know, I think there's a, a tonal element of that too, especially with the Skid Row. Is that if you really look through this, everyone who lives in Skid Row is a minority. Yeah. Um, they're either African-American, they're Jewish, um, they're Hispanic, 
Uh, you know, a lot of those people we see in that opening number, Skid Row. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even Mushnik. I mean, Mushnik yeah. Yeah. is clearly <laughs> right. uh, so, stereotypically Jewish character. So yeah. So and then yet, and then we get the dentist who clearly lives, you know, in the bigger city. Right. You know, he's town. Right. Yeah, and then the the pulling in the higher class people into the mm-hmm. um the shop you know the ones we mostly see are are white mm-hmm. and all that mm-hmm. so there definitely is a little bit of uh you know i don't want to say racist but there is a little bit it's of a, a little bit racist a stereotypical aspect to I, to this movie i'm gonna throw this out there um i don't want to bring it down so the characters Ronette, crystal and chiffon they right they're an interesting character, but they unfortunately fall into this trope called the mm-hmm. the magical black character. Right, it right. Un unnicely is sometimes referred to as like the magical Negro character. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it's just it's basically a black character that has some otherworldly abilities, and their only point is to assist white characters, mm-hmm. which is the only point of them. You don't know anything about them. I could, I've could. i seen right. this movie dozens of times and could not tell you which one is Ronette, Crystal, or Chiffon. <laughs> right. Because right. they only say their names that one time at the very mm-hmm. beginning. Right. But they're just... And that's the only like, speaking roles they have is right there at the very beginning as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Although in, else, the, they're just... in the stage production, they do have a little bit more of a character. They're still... Okay. They're still a little bit, you know, otherworldly, but mm-hmm. they're, they interact more with the characters. Like, they're at the beginning of Somewhere That's Green. That's who Audrey is speaking to. Oh, okay. Are okay. the three of them. And, you know, it's just, it's unfortunate because they're, they've got such pretty songs, but there's not mm-hmm. much to them other than to push the story forward. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, let's talk about favorite scenes, which you can only pick one. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Okay, well, I like the part where it first begins all the way to the ending. How's that sound? Okay. All right, that works. (laughs) (laughs) No, I Anywhere anywhere in that space that one just goes a little bit above the other ones? Mm. Um, Well, you know, I'm always partial to somewhere that's green. It's it's just, you know, it's easy to say that that's kind of an anti-feminist song, but <laughs> just sweet little Audrey, all she has ever known is unkindness and abuse, mm-hmm. and her dream, her her biggest dream is to live in a clean home where she's surrounded by people that she loves and where mm-hmm. she has control over her environment, which she right. doesn't have and has never had. Mm-hmm. Um, surrounded by people that she loves and people who love her back. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's just so pretty. <laughs> yeah, I guess it is tough for this one to say, you, we talk about favorite songs. I think our, our favorite scenes probably involve the favorite songs. It's kind of right. hard to find a scene that's not associated with a song, but, uh, I'll give Laramie a chance to answer. Yeah, no, my mine's the dentist. Uh, mm-hmm. Not not the scene with Bill Murray. As great as it, mine okay, is just the, his just introduction the, just the when he's singing the song. Right. Uh, just the 
the visuals, you know, him on the the motorcycle, uh, yeah, yeah. clearly doing the rear projection, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the <laughs> hopping off the motorcycle and then it just stopping on its own, <laughs> right. uh, having the the guy that's hanging onto the ceiling like a cat. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, the, the even the the great visual effect they did with shooting from inside the mouth. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, yes. You know, that scene, the the shrine in the closet, you know, the, oh, mama. Uh, it's just joke after yeah. joke after joke, and they nail yeah. it. They yeah. nail each one. So that visually, like, even though I did say, you know, uh, Grow For Me is probably one of my favorite songs, that with its visuals tied together makes for my favorite scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And once again, kind of going back to casting, watching that scene, there's nobody else that could pull that off besides Steve Martin. I mean, that's just, no. uh, like I said, the jokes and the, the timing and everything. So, uh, yeah. And see, I think my favorite scene is the Bill Murray and, <laughs> uh, Steve Martin scene together. I mean, yeah. they just, it's, I mean, it's just, it's just pure gold on screen. Yeah. I mean, they're just watching the two two masters have this, you know, little moment in the movie that really doesn't move the story forward at all. It's really just there to watch them do their thing together, which mm-hmm. I think is is awesome. And you know, even behind after that with Seymour and the gas mask, that, that even though it's a it's a it's a it's a murder scene, it's still yeah. it's still hilarious. He puts that mask on. And the little balloons are going, you know, in and out. <laughs> I mean, I remember just, I remember just cracking up laughing at that the first time I saw it. And then, you know, uh, it was just that whole that whole setup is funny. The dog uh, mouth or the rex, whatever animal mouth it <laughs> yeah. is. It's on, like a Rottweiler on, looking thing. Yeah, he's like, you don't want your teeth look like this, do you? And then he shows the picture. <laughs> uh, it gets me every time I've been watching this movie for thirty years, and I still. Oh laugh. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love he talks about you know this is antique. Dull, yeah. heavy, dull, heavy, dull. Yeah, <laughs> the accent and everything just perfect. well, and the fact so that you that's... can see that he's having to pedal crank it. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, so good. Yeah, it's just and so then he's good. like, I'm gonna need some gas for this. He's like, Oh, I didn't think you were using any. Oh, it's not for you, Seymour. It's for me. <laughs> so oh, yeah, he's a monster. <laughs> but it, it does lead me to ask the question, though. Why is okay. murdering people the first choice? There could have been just a couple of throwaway lines of people saying, you know, I haven't seen as many stray cats here lately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, not that yeah. I want cats and dogs to be eaten by a giant plant. Well, but... and they do establish there at the end, you know, when Seymour tells Audrey to, you know, that he's going to go to the butcher and get him a... Mm-hmm. a round, round. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, and and you know, and Audrey too seems to be fine with that because he says, you know, don't do me any favors, you know. So, so why wasn't that what he did from the beginning? I just that that is all. It's not in the stage <laughs> production. It's not in the movie. All it would have taken is right. like a couple of lines of like, you know, we used to have a really bad mice problem, but I have not seen any mice. You know the cats have all left. It's so weird. Yeah, that as well, the I would plant think, got bigger. Yeah. I was gonna say I would think the cat wouldn't wouldn't have lasted because he went from just the blood on his fingertip to full yeah. bodies so, to I mean, humans as he grew 
as he grew, he needed to something Steve bigger. Martin. Yeah. And I loved it how when he was feeding him, he still had the boot on the leg. Like, yeah. still, you know, he's leather, you know, it, it all, it all, it all goes down the same way, I guess. Yeah. So he doesn't eat glasses though. When you watch the original ending, he spits out, uh, Seymour's glasses. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> he's glass intolerant. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's talk about critical reception. So, uh, Rotten Tomatoes. It's got a ninety percent on the tomato meter, with a seventy nine percent audience score on IMDb. It's seven point zero out of ten, with an eighty one on Metacritic. Um, I think those are pretty. Yeah. Pretty and, accurate. And I honestly think it's it's you know you know like I don't know about Bethany, but you know sitting here going, well, that seems kind of low, but. Uh, for such a beloved movie, but I think it's just because of the people who don't like musicals. Those weirdos. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I the, uh, I don't like to be um, judgmental of people, but they they're unforgivable people that don't love musicals. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, musicals aren't everyone's cup of tea, uh, but I it it I enjoyed it. So yeah. um, I don't normally read you know actual reviews reviews on a full episode, but I'm going to do it on this one. I thought these are pretty cool. Uh, the general consensus on Rotten Tomatoes states, remixing Roger Corman's B-movie by way of the off-Broadway musical. Little Shop of Horrors offers camp, horror, and catchy tunes in equal measure, plus some inspired cameos by the likes of Steve Martin and Bill Murray. Uh, Richard Corliss of Time Magazine said, you can try not liking this adaptation of the off-Broadway musical hit. It has no polish and a pushy way with a gag. But the movie sneaks up on you about as subtly as Audrey too. So, and then uh, in the New York Times, Janet Maslin called it a full-blown movie musical and quite a winning one. And of course, Roger Ebert said in his review, "All of the wonders of the Little Shop of Horrors are accomplished with an offhand, casual charm. This is the kind of movie that cults are made of. And after Little Shop finishes its first run, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see it develop as one of those movies that fans want to include in their lives." which he was absolutely correct with that yep. statement. Oz's friend and Muppet colleague Jim Henson praised the film and said the lip sync on the plant in that film is just absolutely amazing. It's yeah. a And I would agree with him. And, yeah. and I don't know if you've if you looked into how they did that. Yeah. But I, yeah. Yeah, but they had to film the plant at a different speed that they were filming mm-hmm. Rick Moranis when he was Right. and just the way they were able to edit that together, it looks seamless. Um, it does. It's yeah. crazy to think that the plant is actually being shown to us in a faster rate than mm-hmm. Rick is. Uh, yeah, it's just so good. Um, that, and that's the thing. The practical effects are amazing. Yeah. They the, still hold up. Yeah, the worst effect yeah. of the movie uh, is when the plant explodes. Um yeah, the, they the, ran the, out of the money. Only, so like special did... effect. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the yeah. only really like uh, computerized effect that they use, and it it doesn't look good. Mm-hmm. Kind of looks yeah. like they they stole a fireworks scene from another movie and just <laughs> threw it in there. Right, right. So yeah, and I think back then, like every explosion kind of looked the same way. I mean. It, it explodes pretty much the same way that the Death Star did in Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. So. 
All right, so it was uh, originally scheduled to release on July 3rd, but was pushed back to December 19th, 1986, due to extensive reshoots, which we discussed. Uh, it was Christmas anticipated movie. to do strong business over the <gasps> yes. 1986 holiday season. Yeah. What'd you say? It's a Christmas movie. Yeah, it became a Christmas movie, yeah. Yes. Another so we should have saved this for December, is what you're telling me? <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> if Die Hard gets to be a Christmas movie, Little Shop gets to be a Christmas movie. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so December 19th, 1986, it came in fourth for the weekend box office behind The Golden Child, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, and Three Amigos, also with Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. The film eventually grossed $39 million at the box office, which, from the viewpoint of the studio, was considered an underperformer. However, it became a smash hit upon its home video release in 1987. So, Yeah, yeah definitely another one of those 80s movies that benefited from home home video yeah. becoming yeah. a big thing yeah like uh i thought this was interesting there i mean if you probably know this already because you're the big comics guy but did you know in 1986 dc comics released a comic book adaptation of the film although really? the book retains some scenes that didn't make it in the final cut of the movie the characters bear little resemblance to the live action counterparts yeah i think i was familiar with that i mean again that was another thing from especially the late 80s and early 90s was just about everything was <laughs> turned every, any movie even if it wasn't based on a book was turned into a yeah. book was yeah. turned into a comic book you know was right was turned into a cartoon um yeah you know yeah there was always cuz that was you know when really the consumerism of hollywood mm-hmm. was becoming a bigger thing uh was yeah. during the 80s yeah i had the which I, I've recently repurchased because I found it in a comic book store, the uh, comic book adaption of Batman from 1989. So I have that one. And then I had one of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom that I wish I still had. It was like a multi, I think it was like a four issue through the whole movie. And then I had one of Alien Nation, which I thought was interesting being an R-rated like adult movie. There was a comic book adaptation of that movie. Yeah. Well, uh, they also, for the that, kids. I had. Well, that was another one they turned into a television show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the kids. So, speak. What'd you say? I said for the kids. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of the kids and uh, cartoons, of course, this one had its own cartoon as well. Uh, it spawned a spinoff Saturday morning cartoon featuring Seymour and the entire Shop Gang, along with Audrey Two, now a nicer plant on Fox in the '90s, starting in 1991. None of the movie cast participated in the cartoon TV show, which was called Little Shop downplaying the horror element in fact audrey too was just a talking plant in the show he didn't eat anyone yeah i think so. I, I think i remember I think this I very vague vaguely remember yeah that. i mean i was three but yeah yeah i do remember that yeah i saw the pictures. picture there was a picture of the of the cartoon and i was like i think i remember that being on tv but i, I don't think i ever really watched it um I mean, so. That sounds like something my parents would sit me in front of to babysit me. <laughs> and that was, you know, 91 Fox was still pretty early. So it was looking yeah. for kind of different programming, too. So uh, a cartoon version of Little Shop was probably right up Fox's alley for back Well, then. and that would have been, so. you're talking about early Fox, so that would have been the Fox Kids lineup where a lot of their stuff was movie-based because I remember they had a Peter yeah. Pan cartoon. They had James Bond Jr. Uh, 
<laughs> I actually remember those. This one I don't really remember, but but looking it up because, like Bethany said, we just Googled it. Like the yeah. the image is kind of ring a bell. Mm-hmm. Um, very reminiscent too of the uh, the Beetlejuice cartoon in terms yeah. of style. Oh yeah, yeah. Now I yeah. definitely remember the Beetlejuice cartoon. Yeah, I remember that one too. So yeah. All right, so of course everything great in the '80s has to be remade at some point, and so it was announced in January of 2020 so that excited. Full Circle, I mean, uh, Full Circle Cinema reported that the remake of the film is in the works with Taron Egerton and talks to play Seymour, Scarlett okay Johansson as Audrey, eh. and Billy Porter voicing Audrey too. That's gonna be so good. Okay <laughs> the Hollywood Reporter affirmed in February that the film was being developed by Warner Brothers Pictures with Greg Berlanti directing. Porter confirmed Egerton and Johansson in negotiations. Additionally, Chris Evans has also been in talks to play the dentist. Yeah. So they just uh, need I'm, to I, not I, I, like I'm, computer computer animate it too much. Yeah, I'm too yeah. worried that Audrey Two is going to be CGI. Yeah, yeah. I I have. I, I'm going to wait till I see a, a trailer <laughs> before I have any yeah. expectations. So, but uh, I like but the casting just... so far. Yeah, if um, it's so just another it way hope. I can hear the, the soundtrack, I'm good. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, thank you guys. Anything else you want to add about the movie before we completely wrap things up? I really like it. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is it a is great a, movie, and, yeah, and yeah. I will say it. This is, this is one of those movies, one of those definitely 80 movies that is totally rewatchable many, many times. It does not get old mm-hmm. the more you watch it. And once again, I think that that plays a lot into the the timelessness of the soundtrack. Um, such great songs, um, well, I mean, and you great talk, performances. You have a daughter, so you yeah. know, like when it when your child gets fixated on something, they watch it mm-hmm. or listen to it over, oh, and yeah. over, oh, yeah. and over again. And it was one of those things that Ruby became really fixated on. Our oldest daughter, and mm-hmm. she wanted to watch it over and over and over again. <laughs> And it was something I didn't mind listening to the soundtrack oh, yeah. or yeah. having it playing. It was, it's really good. Oh, yeah. I agree. My my daughter can't get it. She's not into scary stuff, so she peeked in a few times today when I was watching it. But, of course, it's always right when somebody's going to get murdered, so she could run back, <laughs> back out of the room. But Only uh, two people get murdered. <laughs> right, but she only walked in on those two scenes. <laughs> <laughs> so... Eventually, she'll, she'll come around eventually. She'll come around eventually. Yeah. So. All right, well, uh, Laramie and Bethany, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Really appreciate it. So, uh, And thank Laramie, you, you. want to uh, remind everybody about the Moving Panels podcast? Yeah, so I started up a uh, podcast called Moving Panels. Uh, it is a podcast where we discuss movies and television shows that are based on, inspired by, or adapted from comic books. Um, we've had some really fun episodes. Tim joined me to talk about Superman the movie, uh, and um, we also do we do those every other week. And then on the off weeks, I have episodes that I call one shots, which is where me and my guests will just discuss a, a topic related to to comic books and comic book movies and television shows. So you should check that out. It's called Moving Panels. Definitely. All right, guys, thank you so much for being a part. Thank Thank you. you.
Thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that. One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message through the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. If you do leave us a message, we may just use it in an upcoming mini-episode. Another way to reach us is through the new 80s Flick Flashback Podcast Facebook page, as well as our Movie Views Instagram. Also, be on the lookout for our next mini-episode. Each mini-episode offers some fun segments about the previous full episode, and we'll also introduce the next 80s Flick we'll be watching and covering in the next episode. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Be sure to give us a five-star rating, leave us a stellar written review, and go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you won't miss any of our upcoming episodes. No matter which podcasting platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into this episode. That's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s Flick Flashback.